following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do desire more than anything that you would show us Christ through your word. Lord, you would bring yourself glory through it, that we would be motivated and encouraged and challenged by it. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us the word, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection we have celebrated this morning. Thank you for giving us communion, that we could be constantly remembering what he's done for us, so we'd be motivated to do everything for him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we're going to be in Amos this morning, and uh, by nature, many of these prophecies are confrontational. Um, It reminded me this week, as I was studying, one of the more memorable confrontations in the Old Testament was between the prophet Nathan and King David. You remember that account where David had been in unrepentant sin, the sins of adultery and murder and lying and deceit, and he had not repented from those sins for months. And so Nathan recognized that, and he knew that David must be confronted. But he also knew that, that David's pride would prevent him from listening to Nathan. And so Nathan wisely chose an indirect approach, and Those of you that are familiar with the story might remember that he came to David and he he came to him and told him a story, a situation that he presented as something that was really happening. And he told David about this rich man who had many sheep, was very wealthy, and he had gone to his poor neighbor and taken his poor neighbor's one and only sheep. In fact, it was a pet for his neighbor. And he took his sheep and he ate it, had it for celebration. Remember that? And how did David feel about that? So he was listening to this story. He was getting worked up. And when he heard that, he said, this is what he said in 2 Samuel 12, 5. His anger burned greatly against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, surely that man deserves to die. He was so upset. He said, well, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And that's when Nathan said to David, you are that man. It's amazing. <laughs> David was caught and David went on, or Nathan went on to tell David about his, how terrible his sins were and how they had brought shame not only to himself, not only to his family, but also to God. So the nations around are blaspheming God because of you. And then David, after hearing that, he finally broke and he repented. You know, Nathan was able to get to David by kind of really a sort of bait and switch. Uh, if you're an English lit major, you would call it, he used the rhetoric of entrapment to catch David. Because David tells this story, right? He, he draws David in and he evokes his sympathy. And not knowing really, David didn't know that the story was really about him. And when David reacts to the rich man's great injustice, he's inflamed by it. And Nathan says, it's you. You're the guy. Very effective, very effective, especially with a person who is unrepentant, a person who is defensive or unwilling to see his sin. And you know, Nathan wasn't the only prophet who used this technique, this rhetoric of entrapment. Amos did as well. 
our famous Amos that we started looking at last week. So if you're not there yet, please turn with me to Amos. We're going to be beginning in chapter 2. We got to know Amos a little bit last week. If you remember, what was his, was he a, a prophet by trade? Was that his background? What was he? Yeah, he was a herdsman, right? A, a sheep herder. He took care of cattle and, and sheep and he, he uh, uh, cultivated fig trees. And where was he from? Was he from Israel? No, remember he was from Judah, a place called Tekoa, right south of Judah, about 12 miles. We also learned in Amos 1.1 that he prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel, which places him somewhere around 760 B.C. And we learn from Amos's prophecy and also Hosea, who was around the same time period. And also, if we go back into 2 Kings, we learn that this was actually a time in Israel of great prosperity, of uh, great peace. In fact, probably as much as uh, it hadn't been that way since the days of Solomon. Amos was prophesying in a time when Israel's military was strong. She'd just taken back much territory from the Arameans. Her borders were secure. Her, uh, her economy was booming. And in fact, her religion was very active. The churches, if you will, were full in Israel in those days. And in the midst of all this, God commissions Amos to go to Israel. So Amos leaves his house, takes about a 25-mile journey north into Bethel, which was just at the southern tip of Israel, uh, the religious center of Israel. And Amos gets there, and when he gets there, he faces quite a challenge. Because not only was he this southern sheep herder who was, uh, was sent to Israel, he was also called to deliver a message of judgment. A message of judgment to a people who thought things were going great who thought that God was actually blessing them because of the prosperity and security they had experienced. And as we saw last week in chapter 1, Amos began his message, but he didn't begin it by uh, talking to Israel. If you remember, what, what did he bring up in the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter? He had a message of judgment to whom? Remember the nations that were around Israel. I showed you this map uh, last week. That revealed that the various nations that he brings up in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, are Aram and Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Phoenicia, all the nations directly bordering either Israel or Judah. And he had brought to them, or was bringing a message of judgment against the crimes they had committed against humanity, slavery and betrayal, grave desecration, torture, and the worst of brutalities against the weak. And so Amos declared judgment against those nations. And, you know, in Israel, the, 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 those listening to him probably delivered some of these messages in Bethel. And as the people were listening to him, they're probably feeling pretty good about this, you know, because a lot of these nations, in fact, all of them at one time or another, had oppressed Israel, had brought affliction to Israel. And so as they're hearing about God bringing judgment to them, they must have been delighted to think, oh, that's these enemies, they're finally going to get theirs. Last week we stopped at Amos 2-3 just before getting to the seventh nation on Amos's judgment list. Look with me at Amos chapter 2 verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will revoke, not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah. And it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. So Amos now addresses a seventh nation. And which nation is that that he addresses? 
They're close neighbors to the south, Judah. In fact, they're very brothers. They came from the same man, Jacob. And it's interesting, if you look at this oracle, notice that it is in the exact same format as the six oracles previously for the other nations. He begins it the same way. He brings up the expression for three transgressions and for four, mentions the transgressions, says he will not revoke their punishment, and then uh, says he will bring fire that will devour the citadels. Exactly the same as all the nations before. But there is one difference. In the nations before, he was addressing transgressions against humanity, oppression against others. Here, with Judah, the transgression that he directs his attention towards is the fact that they had rejected the law of the Lord, that they had turned aside. And also it says that their lies have also led them astray. And that word lies here actually is being used as a reference to idols. Because the last phrase of verse 4, those after which their fathers walked, was a common expression used in Deuteronomy and Kings and and Joshua to indicate uh, going after false idols to worship them. So Judah had not only rejected God's law, but also had turned aside to worship false gods. And in many ways, Judah's sin was much worse than the sins that he had already brought up regarding the other nations, because Judah did it in full light of the knowledge of God. They did it in full understanding of God who had revealed himself to them and shown them his grace and cared for them and given them his word, and they knowingly rejected it. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so God declares that judgment would come upon Judah, a judgment that did take place by the nation of Babylon about 150 years later. And so again, put yourself in position of those listening to Amos as he's delivering these messages. And then he, he goes from nation to nation to nation. Then he hits Judah. They would continue to be thrilled at what they were hearing. And God was now judging their self-righteous neighbor to the south. One that was thought they thought they were so smug that they had the temple and they were always bagging on Israel. After all this, you can almost uh, see the, those in attendance. They're nodding their heads in approval. Probably some of them are saying, Great sermon, preacher! Keep it coming! Amen! Hallelujah! They were an active sort. Then comes Amos 2, verse 6. And if I could ask you, please, uh, to stand in respect for God's Word. I'm going to read this section from 2, 6 to the end of the chapter. Amos then declares this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. And on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside the altar And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness forty years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so? O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. 
He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among you, among the warriors, will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. By the time he gets to this point in his message, in verse 6, Amos has teed up his audience. He has teed up Israel. Because he's saying, in effect, at this point, you are the man. Imagine how the mood changed when Amos drew attention away from that finger that they had pointing to all the nations around them and drew attention to the three fingers that were pointing back at them. For while Israel would wholeheartedly embrace God's judgment on the nations for their oppression against Israel and against others, they were all the while condemning themselves. For while they were saying, yeah, God, stick it to them, bring it, bring judgment on these nations, God was saying to them, Israel, you are doing the same things to your own people. You see, they they probably thought after Amos had addressed these seven nations, he'd given the judgment to these seven nations, that that he was done with the judgment part of his message. Uh, Seven was a a number often seen in in the Hebrew mindset as a number of completion. And I think those who were keeping track probably would have expected uh, at this point for Amos to deliver something. I'm going to judge these nations, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to care for you. But instead, Amos was actually setting them up for the rest of his prophecy. And he, he does this by that phrase. Four, for four, three transgressions and for four. We talked about that a little bit last week. And as I mentioned to you, that is a, an idiom that was commonly used as the, in the Old Testament and the ancient Near East as a, a means, a poetic means to, to provide emphasis to a point being made. You know, and as we looked at the various nations and, and as, as he was declaring the transgressions against them, and for each one he would say for three transgressions and for four, and then when he'd get to the list of transgressions, he'd only mention one, or in some cases maybe two. And I think the, the astute among those listening to Amos might be thinking, oh, he keeps only, only, he didn't mention three, he didn't mention four. But then notice when he gets to Israel in verses six through eight. I don't know if you're keeping track, but do you know how many indictments he brought against Israel? He brought seven. Not three, not four, but three plus four. He had a message even in that, that he was proclaiming to these Israelites. His point was, yeah, Israel, these other nations have blown it, but you have really blown it. These nations have sinned. But you have greatly sinned. And so Amos was even using that idiom to get their attention. That it was disconnected all the way up until he addresses Israel. And at the center of God's indictment against Israel was how they were treating those in society who were most vulnerable. In fact, that will be the first point of today's outline. Israel's sins described in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And the second point, we're going to look at Israel's past declared in 2, 9 through 12. And then in 2, 13 through chapter 3, Israel's judgments decreed. And lastly, Israel's example dodged. That'll be where, what can we learn from Amos's message to Israel? Well, again, the transgressions that he describes in verses 6 through 8 all center around social injustice. 
God's given much instruction. He had given them much instruction in His law, particularly in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus. He had told them numerous times how they were to treat those who were afflicted, those who were helpless, those who were needy within their culture. In fact, in Exodus 22, verse 21, we read, God speaking to them. This is not long after the Ten Commandments. He says, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What what else shall he sleep in? God continued later in Exodus 23, verse 6. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due your needy brother in his dispute. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat. God says here, and again, in many other places in His Word, particularly in Old Testament law and the Mosaic Covenant, that the weak in society, are, they're not to be abused, they're not to be treated unjustly, that, that those who were needy would be, need to be cared for, that the afflicted need to be provided for. But He tells Israel through Amos, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And then he lists these seven specific ways that they had transgressed against God's commands. Again, the number seven. You know, Amos actually does that a lot throughout his prophecy. We're going to see that he does that. Again, this idea of of completeness, of thoroughness, is what's communicated in that. And the first transgression that he mentions in verse 6 is that they sell the righteous for money, or literally silver. That idea of sell here, this expression is one that uh, conveyed the, uh, communicated the idea in the Old Testament of, of, uh, of someone going into servitude in order to pay off a debt. Uh, God had graciously provided that as a means for, let's say, if you borrowed some money from someone and, and uh, the year went bad, crops went bad, your business didn't do well, and you had no money to pay the loan back, God had made a provision that you could uh, become that person's servant in order to pay that loan back. But even in His grace, God said, that's only for a period of time. As we read in Exodus, He said, for six years, up to six years, but in the seventh year, they need to be freed. So it wasn't to be a permanent situation unless the person chose that, who was a servant. But here, the impression being given is that they were forcing individuals into that. That term, the righteous, they were selling the righteous. It, it can be used to refer to a person who's justified before God, or it can be used as a term to refer to someone who is uh, doing what is right. But it also is a term that's used for those who are declared innocent in the court, that they had done nothing wrong in a legal situation. And that's the idea of how it's being used here. That, that there were individuals who were either being accused of not paying a debt back or were in a situation where there was difficulty, but they were being unjustly brought before the judges and then forced into servitude. That could have been also because the, the person who gave them the loan did charge them interest at an exorbitant rate, so they were unable to pay it back. But whatever the specific circumstance, God is saying, you're taking people who don't deserve to be forced into slavery and you're doing it to them. And then in a related point he makes in the next transgression, he says, you're also selling the needy for a pair of sandals. 
And again, it's the same expression there. He wasn't saying you're selling someone into slavery uh, for a price of a pair of sandals. What he was saying was that you are forcing those into servitude who even owe very little, the equivalent of a pair of shoes. And so while they may have had legal grounds to be doing what they were doing, they did not have moral grounds. Situation and an example of someone technically doing what is right, but morally doing what is wrong. They were abusing the whole reason that God had set up that system. Amos adds a third transgression in verse 7, which he, uh, the NAS words it as pant after the dust on the head of the helpless. Um, it's a difficult phrase, but I think actually that, that word pant also means, uh, carries the idea of to press on or, or to trample. I think given the context here, what he is saying is that you trample or press down upon those who are helpless. That they were trampling them either into the dust or trampling on them as if they were dust. But either way, communicating the message, you're treating people who are in a helpless condition as if they were dirt, as if they were worthless, as if they did not need to be heeded or respected. And this word helpless that he uses here is more than just poor, but someone who is in abject poverty. Their rights or needs were not even being considered. Amos describes later in chapter 5, verse 11, how those who had these nice stone-built mansions, how they were exacting heavy rent from the helpless, how they were demanding excessive fees from them, and how they were taxing them beyond their means. They were getting rich and building those stone houses on the backs of the poor. Then in verse 7, Amos adds a fourth example. He says they've turned aside the way of the humble. Humble here is the idea of one who is afflicted, one who is oppressed, one who is, uh, had been brought low because of a hardship or pain or despair. Circumstances in their life had brought them in a situation where they, had, they, were, they were at the bottom. And that, that term, the way of the humble, that's, referring to, that's an expression saying that they were trying to get out and get relief from that circumstance, but they were being thwarted from it. Turned aside from it. We read later in Amos chapter 5 some details regarding what was happening here. He describes there in chapter 5 verse 12 how there were people who would come to the city gate. Those who were in this circumstance, who were afflicted, oppressed, they were the humble. And they would come to the city gate, which was the location where legal matters were settled in those days. Kind of like city hall. There would be judges there and you'd bring your case before them. And so these folks who were in this circumstance would come and try to get relief. Probably, again, as we go through Amos, we'll see probably to get relief from the injustices that were happening to them. But Amos says in chapter 5, he says, you know what was happening? That those who were in power, those who had money, were coming to the judges and bribing them. Yeah, not much has changed in 2,800 years, has it? And so these poor folks who were trying to climb out were only being kept in. Amos says, you, you're doing that. A fifth transgression is listed at the end of verse 7 where he says, a man and his father resort, literally go to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. Now some say that that phrase profane my holy name means that he was referring to uh, a son and his dad were going to a temple prostitute. But actually, there's a word for a temple prostitute and that's not the word that Amos used here. He used a word that really can, carries a general idea of, of a female, a, a woman who was either single or married. It referred to women who were widows, also those who were female servants. And given the context here, what do you think he's talking about? 
This was a this was a woman who was and a servant in a household that was being abused and taken advantage of by the men in that house. And God says, that is so despicable. When you do that, you profane my holy name. You pollute it. Because you call yourself my people and you're doing something like that. Instead of serving me, you shame me. Then he brings up a sixth transgression. In verse 8, where he says they stretched out garments or, or blankets taken in pledge beside the altar. That refers to, I read earlier in Exodus 22, uh, one of the provisions that God had made. Uh, if you did owe money to someone, but you were so poor you didn't have anything for collateral, you could in more really of a symbolic gesture give them your blanket. If that's all you had left, you would give them your cloak, your blanket, and you'd say that this is a pledge that I will pay you back. This is the only thing I own, but it's a pledge that I will pay you. And God said, and if someone does that, gives you their blanket, you need to give it back to them before the sun goes down. Why is that? It's all they have to keep warm. But you know what they were doing? Not only were they keeping the blanket, they were using it as they went to church to put it on the ground so they could have a comfortable and uh, relaxing place as they sang praises to the Lord. Yeah. Amazing hypocrisy. Seventh transgression that's mentioned in verse 8 also describes how they would take money that they had extorted from the poor, these fines that they had imposed on them that we learn about later in chapter 5. And they took those fines in order to booze it up, even at their worship services. Again, just incredible hypocrisy. And so, despite all that God had said in His Word, all that He had told them about how they were to treat those who were in desperate situations, those who were vulnerable, those who were uh, uh, poor and needy, God had told them He wanted the haves to take care of the have-nots. But despite the great wealth and prosperity that they had experienced even in Amos' day, they they not only neglected the needy and the afflicted and the poor, they actually abused and oppressed them. That was one of the reasons they actually had wealth. And so, what makes these actions even more reprehensible is the fact that what God had done for them, how He had delivered them from oppression. That's where He goes in the next section in verses 9 through 12, where we see Israel's past declared. God opens verse 9 with an emphatic expression in the Hebrew saying, Yet I myself, to, to give a contrast, in contrast to, to how you're treating your people, remember how I treated you when you were in the same situation. And he, he brings up the fact that he had destroyed the Amorites. That's a, in that case, it's being used as a general term of those who were in the land of Canaan. You remember the ones that the spies said they were too big to kill, too big to defeat? God says, I, I, I destroyed them for you. I gave you the land I had promised. He says he delivered them out of Israel, out of slavery in the land, excuse me, delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And then he says, and I kept my promise to you and gave you the land I had promised to Abraham. And notice in verse 10, all along so far, God had been using the third person pronoun they. Here in verse 10, he switches to you. This is an intensely personal declaration by God. It's as, it's as, if, it's as if he was saying, don't, don't you remember how I delivered your forefathers from Egypt? Remember that they were under affliction and oppression by Pharaoh's whip? Don't you remember how I freed them from slavery? And in a real sense, I not only freed them, but 
But I freed you because if I hadn't have freed them, you would still be there. He said, don't don't you remember how I fulfilled my promise and gave you this rich land, a land which you did not earn? And to that, in verse 11, he adds a fact. And and I've sent to you prophet after prophet to, to warn you, to instruct you, to give you guidance into how to apply my law in a changing world. But what did they say to those prophets? They told them, shut up. Don't prophesy. Go away. Something Amos is going to experience in chapter 7. They rejected God's messengers because they rejected his message. God also says, I I raised up Nazarites for you. Nazarite is described in Numbers chapter 6 as a a person who would dedicate uh, themselves in service to God and make a vow. And that vow involved not cutting their hair, not drinking wine, and not uh, touching a dead Corpse. Those may seem rather random, but the intent was just as a, a specific means to demonstrate a full devotion to God. And you remember any, by the way, any Nazarites you can remember from the Old Testament? There were a couple. Samson and Samuel, actually, dedicated by his mother. But these Nazarites, you know, they were kind of like spiritual billboards. They would uh, just remind those around them, of the importance of being devoted to God and sacrificing to Him. But to the Israelites, these Nazarites were not a source of encouragement, but rather a source of guilt. Kind of like when you, you know, if you go to In-N-Out, you get a double-double and animal cheese fries and a milkshake, and then someone comes and sits down next to you with a salad. You go, oh man. Right? So to ease their guilt, these Israelites, what does it say that they did in verse 12? They uh, either tempted or forced these Nazarites to drink wine, to break their vow. So despite all God had done for Israel, they did not learn mercy or compassion. The oppressed actually became the oppressor. The one shown mercy was willing to give none. The one delivered from poverty had no desire to deliver others. The one shown grace responded in disgrace. And though though God had given them so much and shown them so much kindness towards them when they were helpless, many in Israel took advantage of those who were vulnerable. And so God, who is perfectly just, responds to injustice by bringing judgment upon even His people Israel. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Israel's judgment decreed. God begins in verse 13 with a, a statement the prophets often use. Behold, look, watch, see. New American standards followed by this uh, phrase, I'm weighted down as a wagon. But uh, that word weighted has the idea of, of, of pressing down or, or being crushed down or burdened. But the, the verb here should, should not have been translated in the passive, but in active sense. That is, God isn't being weighted down. He is weighing down. Con- the con- context here is judgment. God's saying, just like in Amos the herdsman, using this picture of a, just think of a wagon that's just filled with so much grain that it's sagging into the ground and you can hear it creaking. It's kind of like when you, when you put so much stuff in your trunk that your car's like scraping on the road. That's the picture he's giving here. And he's saying that is, that is what God is going to do as he presses down judgment upon his people. And then he describes that judgment in verses 14 to 16 as a uh, in terms of using military terminology he's just gonna, he's talking about an invading army is going to come because he uses a list here 
a list of seven examples, again the number seven, seven examples of, of those in the military and their inability to oppose this coming enemy force. He says the quick-footed soldier will not be quick enough. The strong soldier will not have strength to fight. The mighty warrior will not be mighty enough to save himself. The archer will be unable to stand his ground to shoot his arrows. The fast soldiers will not be running into battle, but be trying to escape and will fail. Even the cavalry will not be fast enough to retreat. The most courageous of soldiers will be humiliated. He's saying, no matter the branch of service, no matter the might or the courage of the soldier, they will not survive this coming onslaught. And again, Amos uses seven, a list of seven, in order to communicate, uh, imply a thoroughness, a completeness in this destruction. And note here as well that Amos doesn't give the identity of this invading force. He, he doesn't mention that. Amos 6.14, he talks about it being another nation. But we learn later in 2 Kings 17, this nation is none other than Assyria, who in less than 40 years, in that very generation, they were going to come and invade Israel, take them away into exile in 722 B.C. Now at this point, <clears throat> again, the people had been hit, just like David was hit. They had been set up and thought, you know, the message wasn't going to be directed towards them. And all of a sudden, Amos does direct it towards them. And all these things that he says, ending with judgment, Amos anticipates the question from this audience. that Hey, wait a minute, Amos. How could God do that to His chosen people? You just said He, he delivered us from Egypt, and He did. How could He do this to this, His ones that He set apart? And, and who are you, Amos, to be delivering this message to us? Well, that's the purpose of the first half of this next chapter in chapter 3. We see in verse 1 there of chapter 3, if you look there with me, Amos says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family. And he's, there he's referring to all 12 tribes. He brought you, which he brought from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore... I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here again, God reminds, echoes back to what he just said in chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. He reminds them of the grace that he extended to them when he delivered them from Egypt and gave them the land. And then he says here, beyond that though, beyond the fact that I I gave you freedom and, and saved you, gave you the promised land, beyond all that, I chose you. I specially chose you from among all the peoples of the earth that you would be people I would give the law, that you would be the people that I would promise to be faithful towards, that you would be a people that would be a light to the nations. God's saying here, yes, indeed, you are my chosen people. And the question is not, how could I judge you, but how could I not judge you? Notice the therefore in the middle of verse 2. God's saying, you've been given special privilege to bear my name before the world. You above all people should know what is right. You above all people should be a beacon of righteousness to this world. So how can I not bring consequences for your sin? Your special status doesn't excuse you from judgment, he's telling the people of Israel. Rather, it demands it. And then he gives a series of rhetorical questions. Guess how many he gave, by the way, in verses 3 to 6. Yes. How'd you know? Yeah, seven. Again, a list of seven. And these questions that he gives 
are uh, rhetorical questions, with the, and the answer is obvious to them. The question in verse 3 he gives is, is this idea of, would two men, two people walk together if they hadn't agreed to do so? Of course not. Or it, would a lion roar before it had caught its prey? Would it do that to alert its prey of its coming? Or would a, a lion uh, growl within his den if he hadn't caught anything? They typically would growl after having a meal. Verse 5, he says, uh, does a bird enter a trap if there's no bait into it? Bait into, in it? Or does a trap spring if there's nothing going into the trap? And they answered all these questions. They'd be, oh, of course not. Uh, verse 6, he says, if the trumpet or the shofar is blown to alert the city of a coming enemy, would not the people feel fear at the uh, notion of there being attacked? And he says, if a calamity occurs in that city, is it not the sovereign Lord who's ultimately behind it? Again, there's an obvious answer to these questions. Of course. Of course. All these have an obvious response in order to communicate this point. If you are my chosen people, if I care enough about you, if I care enough about my name, if I care enough about those to whom you're sinning against, is it not obvious that I would bring consequences for your sin? To warn you, to get your attention, to get you to stop? These rhetorical questions not only answer that, why would God judge his people here in this case, but also who is Amos to declare that judgment? Look at verse 7. He says, Surely, that's emphatic, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Again, that word surely there says, of of course there'll be consequences for your sin. And of course, my prophet is going to declare them. God had a history and a pattern of whenever he brought judgment, especially to his people, he would send somebody to tell them, to warn them. It's really an act of mercy. And he's saying here, since God has this message, would I not tell the prophets? And then Amos is saying, as a prophet, if I'm given this message to declare, would I not speak it out? Unless, of course, you're Jonah, I guess. But other than Jonah, Amos is saying, God's spoken a message to me. And yeah, I'm just a herdsman from the south, but I'm compelled to tell you, to warn you on God's behalf and for, for your help. Amos again declares that warning in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3. I'm sorry I'm speeding up here a little bit, but I want to get, get through this as an important point. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod, again, a chief city in Philistia representing the Philistines, and on the citadels of the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel, the central location uh, politically and religiously. And see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels and their fortresses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed, the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on that, the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fail, fall to the ground. 
I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Several times here we see that phrase, declares the Lord. God wants to make sure they understand this message is from Him. In verses 9 to 10, he has this interesting rhetorical statement where he says, call, uh, call the Philistines, call the Egyptians, have them come and observe in Samaria the oppressions that were happening there. And what would make that such an ironic statement? What would make that such an ironic thing that he would say, given what had the Philistines and the Egyptians done to Israel? They had been some of the chief oppressors of Israel over the course of their history. And now God is saying, it's so bad what you guys are doing. I'm going to have your historical oppressors come and declare indictment against you. I mean, it was bad. Verse 11, God reiterates the judgment he declared back in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, that it would be an army who would overrun Israel. And all the wealth that the people had accumulated on the backs of the poor and the needy and the afflicted, He says, they're going to loot you. They're going to take all that wealth that you accumulated away. He says here, all would be torn down from the military to the religious centers at Bethel to the houses of the rich. Nothing would be left. And Amos has more to say to them in the coming weeks. And we're going to look at that. But what can we take away at this point from what he has said so far, what lesson is here for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, this is a Old Testament prophet speaking to the nation of Israel. Well, that brings us to our fourth and last point this morning. Israel's example dodged. And by that, I mean, what, what can we learn from Israel's example? Before answering that question, it's important to remember, you know, as we think about a pl- application from, you know, as we're going through these prophets as we think about application and what we can glean from them, we, you know, we need to remember that, that God is addressing a nation here. A nation that's under the Mosaic Covenant. And it's a nation that's largely made up of non-believers. And so we have to be very careful that we don't equate Old Testament Israel to the church. They're not the same thing. They're not the same. And having said that, though, as we look at what God expected from His people, what He desired to see in them. We can learn about God and what He would desire to see in us, right? We can learn about His character and learn about what He would expect from those whom He has transformed and saved. And from Amos, we are shown just how significant, how important it is to God, how we treat the vulnerable, the weak, and the needy. Not only in our body, but also in our society. Obvious lesson from Israel's example is we must never take advantage of them. We must never, ever oppress them or bring harm to those who are weak and vulnerable. But it's not just what we must not do, right? But also what we must do. There's an obvious lesson here for us in this. Jesus said in Matthew 25, to the extent that you do it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And what was the it there? What was the it that Jesus was talking about? Do you remember? Providing for those in need. Visiting those in prison. Fellow brothers of mine, Jesus said. James James 1.27 says, Care for orphans and widows in their distress is pure and undefiled religion. He's basically saying if we claim the name Christian, we must look after the afflicted. We must care for the marginalized. We must help the helpless 
and the poor. If we see a need, we must meet it. James 4.17 says, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, I'm not going to worry about it. No problems here. Move on. All right? What does he say? To the one who does not do the right, right thing, who do, knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is, is sin. Or Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Again, meaning those who are being victimized to the point that their life is in danger. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does he not who weighs the heart perceive it? Does he not who keeps watch over your soul know it? Again, he's speaking primarily here of those in mortal danger, but the principle really applies to any who are suffering harm. That if we see the vulnerable being harmed or oppressed and we do nothing about it, we don't have an excuse. God holds us as his people accountable. And you know, there were some in Israel in that day who were not actually perpetrating the oppressions, but when they saw them, did nothing to prevent it. God held them accountable as well. And I realize, you know, as I'm saying these things, these are pretty broad statements. I realize they can be taken in a number of different ways, and in some ways that would not be ways in which God intends. But a good place to start that I would encourage you to think about is to come alongside those ministries which are gospel-centered mercy ministries that our, that our church supports or that those in our body are a part of and serve in. There's Avenues Pregnancy Clinics or Abort73.com, both of which are dedicated and gospel-centered to seek to protect the rights of the most vulnerable in our society, the unborn. There's Hope Again or House of Blessing, Ministries located right here in Hollywood that are focused on giving help to the many who are trying to get off of drugs. The many who are on the streets and trying to get back their life. Some who have come out of prison. Or even those who are in a circumstance that they are being horribly abused. And these places are places of protection for them. Again, very gospel-centered ministries. There's Children's Hunger Fund, which provides meals for the poor, both here and abroad, as a, as a means and opportunity to share the gospel. In fact, I think there's still a few food packs over here near the prayer room that uh, you could pick up to deliver to somebody in need. Or consider the providing foster care or adoption. Or if that's something that you're not able to do or capable of doing, there are many other families here you could help. I know I've mentioned this several times because it's important. Uh, Jeff had mentioned to me, learn it about, there's around 20 to 25 households that are involved and in, have adopted a child, are currently in the process of adoption or providing foster care. And if you don't know a family, find one so that you can come alongside them and just help them in any way they need help. And that way you would be coming alongside the helpless and the afflicted. Also, if there are any laws or bills or those in government who aren't defending the helpless or the afflicted, then seek to make change. I think we gave one example this morning. And again, I'm not telling us that we're supposed to all be political activists and start making these posters and things like that. But, but if we see injustice taking place and do nothing against those who are afflicted, God cares about these things. And, you know, and there's so many of you that I, I've been so encouraged by who are involved in things like this. It just pleases my heart so much to see how many of us are, are sacrificing in these ways to come alongside. But I know there may be some here, maybe you aren't 
there yet. And I would just challenge you, ask yourself, what are you doing on a consistent basis to help the helpless, to relieve the afflicted, to care for the needy? And I understand that the ultimate needs in this world are not physical. Okay, I I understand that the primary need is what? Is what? The gospel, Jesus Christ, right? I I know that our, our greatest responsibility in our world, is to let our world know that, that, that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. That's the most important thing for us. I recognize a person's per- physical comfort, that that's not the final goal. But let's not get on that pendulum which says either we're fully committed to a, a doing social good versus preaching the gospel, as if those two things are antithetical to one another. Let's not do that. People need to hear the gospel, Right? Amen? They do. We need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that God became a man and as a man put himself on a cross as payment for the wrath of God against sin so that any who would turn to him to repent from their sin and and commit to follow him and trust in him, that Jesus Christ would forgive them and they would not suffer the penalty of eternal punishment in hell. That message must go forth. That is the only message that will save a person and make them in right standing with God and allow them to be His child. I understand that. They need to hear that. People need to hear the gospel. And at the same time, people need to see it. Why can't we do both? We should do both. We must do both. Amos teaches that that we have a mandate to preach the gospel, but also a mandate to care for needs. These aren't mutually exclusive, brothers and sisters. They go hand in hand. They really do. Because, you know, just just talk to our sister Carol Clark, who's ministered to so many. She'd tell you there are many, many who are abused, discarded in our society, sinned against, ignored, maligned, marginalized, unjustly treated, and, and they need to see Jesus. They need to see Him. And I'm not talking about a mystical experience here. I'm talking about the fact they need to hear His voice through His Word, and they need to see Him through His children. Yes, there are many of those who are in these places, in these situations because of their sin or because of unwise decisions that they have made. But that doesn't mean that we can ignore them. Ah, that guy, he deserves what he's getting. Is that what God did to you when you were in your sin? I mean, I I thank God that even in my rebellion, he sent people to me to tell me about his son and to show me his son. Even when I, I won't even tell you the things I did. I thank God that he cared for me and showed me his kindness when I'm the last guy that deserved it. I still don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, let's remember from Amos what God did for Israel and have it remind us what He's done for us. Right? It says that just as He destroyed Israel's enemies, did He not, through the cross, destroy our greatest enemy, Satan, who wants nothing more than to see us in eternal suffering apart from God? And just as God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, has He not freed us from sin through the cross? Just as He freely gave them the promised land, 
Has he not given us an eternal inheritance, something we didn't earn or work for, something that we're not worthy of, and yet he offers it to us freely? Just as he gave them his word through the prophets, he's given us his word through those same prophets and also through the apostles. And beyond that, he's given us teachers to help us understand it and to apply it. Just as God gave them the prophets and the Nazarites to be examples to his people, has he not given us examples to show us how to live for Christ? Just as he chose Israel out of his great mercy, has he not chosen us? Has he not cared for us who were helpless and afflicted? Again, I I say these things not so that you'd be motivated by guilt, but motivated by eagerness to serve such a kind God, such a gracious God, such a God who cares so much for those who are afflicted in our world. You know, Jesus gave us the ultimate example of what God would do if He were living here. It's an example He's given us to follow. It says in Acts that He went about doing good, that He cared for those in need, that He he spent time with those in society who were downcast and rejected. He defended the weak. And the message of Amos to us is go and do the same. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your mercy on us and your kindness and Lord, even giving us your word and giving us passages like this one in Amos, which uh, Lord is full of much judgment. But within that, we see your heart and your desire to to see your people care for those in need. And Lord, I know there's many issues of wisdom and how we might do that in a way that honors you and doesn't um, Lord encourage sin or things like that. But, but God, I pray you would give us the same heart as the heart of you, the heart of your Son who loved others, sacrificed for them. And Lord, help us to come alongside these many wonderful ministries that, Lord, seek to help those who are afflicted. And Lord, that we would be a part of that. Just, uh, Lord, make us a church that is known for our love for you and our love for people. And thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give us. These aren't things that we have to try to work out on our own, but Lord, give us the, you've given us your grace, God, to know what to do and, Lord, to strengthen us and to do it. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.